Thank you, worship team. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Somebody want to turn there? Acts chapter 2. I know that seems like we're going backwards because we're way past Acts chapter 2, but we're going to be spending the next few weeks talking about uh, community. And uh, really, this is a series on uh, ecclesiology. That's a big word, so I don't like to use it. Um, the, the doctrine of the church and what it means to be part of a church family, what it means to exist together and be on mission together, and, and all this kinds of stuff. And really, I'm going to spend the first couple of weeks breaking down the word community. And today, we're going to be talking about what we have in common. And then next week, we'll be talking about unity. And uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot in this. And then um, we'll be talking about some practical things beyond that. Why do we need to do this? Well, sometimes churches, you know, can send mixed signals, and sometimes I think we lose sight of what church is all about. Um, Here's some church signs that I think uh, don't do a very good job of being clear on what the church is all about. Little Hope, Little Hope Baptist Church. Uh, I I don't know who names these places, but uh, this was a bad idea, I think. I think, you know, doesn't this just smack... A committee was formed, and the church committee came up. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, this one, Halfway Baptist Church. I don't know what that means. Uh, I don't know if that means that half of the people sit in the front and half of the people sit in the back. Um, but uh, Or maybe it's uh, they forgot that line in the book of Revelations where it says, don't either be hot or cold. Uh, if, uh, I wish you were hot or cold. Instead, you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They're Halfway Baptist Church, or lukewarm. I don't know. Uh, this one really made me chuckle. Harvey Park Christian Church, Disciples of Chris. I'd like to meet this Chris because he's got disciples. Um, but this, this last one is my favorite. Now, in my office in my library, I have a book called The Handbook of Christian Denominations, and I could not find this denomination in that handbook anywhere, so I don't know what these people believe. The Greater Macedonia Fire Baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas. Anyone, anyone, I, I would just love to know what the doctrine they teach there is. The, the point is that we, sometimes we're not clear about what a Christian community is all about. And let me just tell you, I think there's a lot of folks, uh, you know, this is, this is the, the air we breathe in the United States today, at least, or maybe the Western world, the air we breathe is, it doesn't really matter, it just only matters what, how you identify yourself, right? And I'm speaking very broadly here. I think there's a lot of folks that identify themselves as Christian, but if you started scratching the surface a little bit and asking them, what does that mean? What does that mean for your day-to-day? What does that mean for your life? Be a good person and maybe as far as you could get. And so we want to be really clear about what a Christian community is all about and specifically what our Delaware Bible Church community is all about. And that's why we're going to wrestle with this question today. As we think about church, what are the things that we have in common at Delaware Bible Church? What are the things that we have in common at Delaware Bible Church? I'm going to argue next week, by the way, that you can't have unity just for unity's sake. You have to have unity around a common set of ideas, uh, some things that we hold in common. So today we're going to be talking about all the different things that we uh, hold in common. And I'm going to use, uh, as our text this morning, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42 all the way to 47. So let's just work our way through that as we go. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is we share a common doctrine. We share a common 
a set of teachings, if you will. Look at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves. This is, let's, let's think contextually here. The church is just forming. The day of Pentecost has just happened. And for the first time, people are hearing the gospel and coming to Christ to follow him, right? To follow him. And look what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Interesting stuff. But uh, let's just think reasonably here. Why did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, we're not talking about that today. At this particular moment in time, they had the... um, They had no New Testament. There was nothing written yet. They only had the Old Testament scriptures, what some people would call the Hebrew Bible. They only had that. And so all they had to go by was what Jesus taught the apostles, and the apostles were teaching them. Today, uh, we're devoted to trying to understand, to the best of our ability, this life through the prism of the scripture, of the Bible. We're Delaware Bible Church. And so that's why we do zany things like preach through whole books of the Bible. Uh, When somebody asks us a question or asks me a question, I try to think, well, what does the Bible say about that? That's my, like, default position. That's that's the setting, right, that's in my brain. What's the Bible say about that? Is this, uh, you know, what's God's prohibition? What what does he ask us to do? What does he ask us not to do? Where are the areas of freedom that we have? That's what we try to think about. And so under the heading of this common doctrine or set of teachings that we, that we hold in common, uh, let's talk about a few of those. The first thing and foremost is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what gospel means, good news. So what is the good news? And let me tell you, before we even get into what the good news is, I think we ought to cover that this morning, because I think this is key. It's paramount. It's the number one thing. There's a lot of counterfeits out there in our society. A lot of things masquerading as the good news of Jesus Christ that is, in fact, not. Not the least of which is what some people call the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. In other words, using the Bible or God as a a genie's lamp or a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, if you rub it and and say your prayers, you know, God's going to give you what you want. That's, That's not the gospel, there is nothing in scripture that indicates right at least in this life we'd be clear god promises his people an eternity that is free of sin and is wonderful it's what we read about at the end of the book of revelation streets of gold and no sickness no every tear wiped away right the the end the end of our faith or the full result of our faith being with god in eternity is magnificent. Don't get me wrong. But that is not promised to us here in this life. There are people that try to take the scriptures and twist them around and make it seem like the Bible says that, but it doesn't say that at all. In fact, Jesus himself, God's only son, came to this world and he suffered. Suffered a horrific death, died on the cross, and while he was teaching before he died and rose again while he was teaching he assured us that if we followed him we would suffer persecution we would endure trials but even in those trials those trials were meant for our good so don't fall for the counterfeit of the health wealth and prosperity gospel there are others there are other counterfeits out there that say 
that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's what we call a works-based salvation. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible speaks against that. Salvation is a free gift of God. Works are a result of that salvation, not a means to achieve it. The Bible says that over and over. So don't fall for the works-based salvation. Now, listen, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, but one of the things that I've seen, I guess I'll say it this way, my observation is that though we would proclaim a free gospel, uh, a free gift of salvation from the Lord, that sometimes we live as if we're thinking more of the works-based salvation. Be careful with that. Be careful. There's other counterfeits too. Some folks just claim that there is no God. Uh, there is no God, and therefore we don't need to worry about it. And uh, anybody who says that, I, I promise you this, is, is oftentimes trying to justify their own selfish, sinful lifestyle and trying to get you on board with that it's okay. You know, it makes us feel better when more people are on board with the way we're living. So if I can get a whole bunch of people to believe that my way of life is good, it makes me feel better about myself. Uh, don't you believe it? There indeed is a God and the evidence of that is all around us. Psalm 19 says, the heavens cry out, right? Uh, in other words, nature, our genetic code, our DNA, it all screams out. There is an intelligent, creative, awesome God. But the thing that we hold in common is the true gospel, the biblical gospel. Out in our track rack in the vestibule between the two front doors, there's a whole rack of these tracks called Two Ways to Live. I would encourage you to pick one of these up, throw it in your purse, your backpack, your briefcase, your Bible, whatever, because this is a really good tool. First of all, it's a clear understanding of the gospel, and second of all, uh, it's good to share with someone who is seeking the Lord. But as this tract says, the gospel is, is not difficult to understand, uh, but it starts out with God, right? God is the ruler and the creator, and he's good. Revelation 4, 7 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God made it all. He created, excuse me, he created it all. He is awesome. And by virtue of his creative powers and his creative efforts, he is worthy to be the ruler. But th what's also true, what's also part of the gospel message is that we rebelled against him. This started in the garden with Adam and Eve and continues to this day. We are born in sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We're born in this life, and the, the default setting that we come with is, I want to live for me. Me, myself, and I, the Holy Trinity of self, right? That's what we want to live for. We want to live for ourselves. And so we reject God. We, we resist Him. We think about His ways, and we consider them to be foolishness because we want to do it our way. But what's also true, what's part of the gospel message, is that God is just, right? And he is going to punish sin. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes 
judgment. Isaiah chapter 6 refers to God as being holy, holy, holy. He's set apart. He's perfect. He's altogether different. And because we're sinners, because God is, is perfect, he is angry at sin and rebellion and will punish it. And folks, if we cut off this right here and we all just went home, we would be left, you, you may be tempted to be left with an understanding, an incomplete understanding of the gospel that would leave you sorrowful and just doomed to a fate separated from God forever. But that's not the good news. The good news is coming, and that is that God sent Jesus to die for us. God did not leave us in our sinful state to be eternally separated from him. No, God, because he is gracious and because he is merciful, sent his only son, Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6, we've already read part of it. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the him is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This message of Jesus coming to this earth and dying on the cross for our sins is so profound, so important, so key to our understanding of this life that God gave it to, gave it to us four ways, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Old Testament points towards it, the rest of the New Testament points back at it as the seminal moment in human history. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and his death being the payment for our sins. But because he rose from the dead, Jesus, the risen ruler and Savior, he is, uh, he is the only one. Can I just say this? We've got doctors in this congregation. We've had them before. We'll have them again. We've got medical professionals in this congregation. None of them have defeated death. Either their patients nor themselves have they been able to cheat death and live longer than a hundred and some years. None of them. But Jesus died on the cross and rose again and did not die again. The book of Acts tells us that he ascended into heaven and is now currently sitting at the right hand of God the Father. What does this do? This uh, it makes him the only one who is able to be our Savior and therefore able to be our ruler. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, made it so that if we trust in him, when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, which is the thing that separates us from him. He now sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we follow him, God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is perfect. It is holy because he is God in the flesh. And so this presents us with a choice as human beings. We have two ways to live. We can choose to live our lives for self, that's the way we're born. We want to live for self, and when we die, we will be separated from God forever. Or we can choose to live and follow Jesus Christ. And in making that decision, God gives us eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
This is the good news. This is the message that we as Christians carry around with us everywhere we go. And we apply it in all the different ways that we live, or at least we should. This is the message of life. The newness of life now, meaning we can live different. We can live holy in this life now, but we'll never do so perfectly. But eternal life and the end of sin when this life is over. We have a common understanding of the gospel. There's some other things that we, as a church, as Delaware Bible Church, that we try to have a common understanding of. For example, we try to have a common understanding of law and grace. I was reading through the book that the men are reading through right now from Alistair Begg, and, and there was a quote in there that I pulled out because it was mentioned in this in the, one of the chapters, I think the introduction, says this, uh, this is from a man named Vidler. The church on earth has always, as it were, to walk on the razor's edge between legalism and antinomianism. That means lawlessness. Legalism and lawlessness. Between taking the law too seriously and not taking it seriously enough. It is not surprising that every church tends to err in one direction or the other. We as a church, we know, because we talk about this a lot, that we don't want to fall into legalism. We don't want to make the gospel message a message of you have to obey all these rules, right? Turn the, well, pervert the gospel and make it into follow these rules or you're going to hell. That's not the gospel. We just talked about that. Nor do we want to be a church that says the rules don't matter. Do as you wish. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why do we obey this book? Why do we obey God's word? It's not so we can earn our salvation. We've already talked about that. Salvation is a free gift of God. So why? Well, many reasons, but here's a few to think about today. First of all, and I say this a lot, why would we want to go back and practice the sin that was killing us? The sin that was sending us to hell. The sin that, that which God says he is displeased with, that which God says is, is harmful to us and those around us. Why would we want to go practice that stuff? I know it looks alluring. Many things in this world look alluring and hold the promise of of, of fun and excitement, but they don't always satisfy. Very often they don't satisfy. And so we practice what God has said so that we don't get snarled up in the very things that were killing us in the first place. But, more, but also, uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.16 that we are to be holy as he is holy. We, we have this God that loves us so much he sent his only son to die for us, why would we not want to live in such a way that we know is pleasing to him, but also at the same time, this is what I love about God. God asks us to live in a way that, at the, that simultaneously is pleasing to him and also good and healthy for us. In other words, it doesn't make any sense for us to hold grudges, but to, but to approach our brother or sister in Christ and, and settle disputes quickly and, and find, reach forgiveness restitution, restoration. It doesn't make any sense for us to, to um, take advantage of, of, of people 
and for financial for our own financial gain and all that kind of good stuff it weighs on our conscience to do so and it harms the other people and builds us a bad reputation out of the community why would we want to do that stuff so we walk in the ways of christ because we want to be holy as he is holy because these things are good for us they're pleasing to the lord and perhaps as we are holy as we are set apart from this culture this wicked generation that we live in now as we are different that will start a conversation with someone where they say you're different why different in a good way right we don't want to be different in a bad way we want to be different in a good way your kindness is different your compassion for people is different the way you conduct yourself is different why gives us an avenue to speak the gospel there are many other reasons but if we if we get too far into legalism we pervert the gospel with legalism or we forget what god says altogether we fall into traps we also have an understanding of god's sovereignty versus man's responsibility we talked a lot about this when we worked our way through the book of romans right and we don't want to get too far we don't want to get too far off on this here's what we know it is difficult to understand this concept of god in his sovereignty meaning he's absolutely in control of all things we know that the bible tells us that but that also that man is responsible for what we do and that seems to be a paradox it seems to be that those two things can't be true at the same time but remember always remember you and I suffer from, the, from a common illness. It's not really a medical illness. It's more of a mental disorder. We have a homartological hangover. We have a sin hangover. In other words, our brains don't work right because we've got sin in our lives, and it perverts everything. That's why we, we grab onto the Word of God. We, we read it. We soak it in. We meditate upon it. We think about it. We try to apply it. Because this is the pathway to life. If we're left to our own devices, we'll fall into all kinds of foolishness. All we know is if we go too far into God's sovereignty, then we will reach the conclusion that we're not responsible for anything. What will be, will be, will, will be very fatalistic in this life. And if we think that, it, uh, if we forget about God's sovereignty and we go too far into man's responsibility, will think that we're, we're in control, that we, can tell the, that we can control the future and all these kinds of things, and we can't. So though it's, it's difficult to understand, God's Word makes it very clear that we're in this life where God is sovereign, and at the same time, we are responsible for our actions. We have a common understanding of, our, of Christ's transforming role in the culture. And this is something that I, think that I think that we struggle with, but we try. We struggle with this. We've got an election coming up. How much, weight should, how much time should we devote to candidates and elections and, and all these kinds of things? And, and you know, do we labor under the, under the notion that if we just get the right people into office, we can, we can transform the culture? Well, Here's what I would say. I would say uh, that this is a tricky, tricky one. There's a book out there uh, called Christ and Culture. You may have heard of it. It's kind of a classic by Richard Niebuhr. And, and he makes 
five observations in that book that I think are helpful. Um, Pastor Aaron in the, in the 12th grade class at Delaware Christian School has been studying this stuff recently, and um, it's, it's been good to think through. And, and he says you can think about Christianity and culture in about five different ways. One way is you can think that, that Christ is against culture, that Christ is against human culture. These are the folks that are, uh, uh, maybe they're uh, monks, and they just want to separate themselves altogether from society and go cloister themselves away and just live Christian over here, totally separated from society. Maybe the Amish has a, a little bit of this going on. There's a, there's a popular idea out there called the Benedict Option, where you know, as the, as the culture in the United States continues to decline, Christians should just get up and move to a, I don't know, maybe we'll buy Utah. Has that been tried before? I don't know. You don't like my Mormon jokes? Anyway, we'll buy a patch of land. We'll all move there. We'll separate ourselves from the culture, right? We'll let the culture destroy itself. And when, after Armageddon has happened, we'll reemerge from our little community and we'll go out and begin to rebuild, right? That's Christ against culture. I don't think that's right. Then uh, Niebuhr argued that there was the Christ of culture, we were, in other words, he's, he's trying to like integrate our Christianity into the culture that we live in uh, as, as, as copacetically as possible. This is kind of what Thomas Jefferson did. This is maybe what the Sadducees in the Bible did. They, they were Jews, but they, they were very uh, interested in synergizing or synchronizing what they believed with what the Roman government was trying to do. And so they were kind of sidled up to the Roman government. And the net result was a very watered down Judaism. It's perhaps what we would call liberal Christianity today. Then the third option was the Christ above culture. Christ above culture. And this is maybe what the Pharisees were like, right? They looked down, it's the, it's the Jews that looked down upon culture and said, no, nah, that's a mess down there. We're going to rise above that. We're going to do something completely different up here. And, um, you know, maybe this is the more legalistic churches that just don't, don't want to sully themselves by getting involved in secular things. They divide the secular and the sacred. He had another one called Christ and Culture and Paradox. That was a little bit more tricky. I'm not going to explain that one this morning. But the, the, the fifth one, the fifth one was, is the one that I think is, is helpful. It's, it's, his fifth option was Christ transforming culture. Christ transforming culture. Let me ask you this. How many of you, uh, I, don't even, I don't even think we should raise our hands. Let's not raise our hands. Let's just do this, let's just do this um, rhetorically. How many of us have, been, uh, have done some business out in the culture and we received what you would consider to be the short end of the stick? You got scammed or finagled out of your money. This is a pretty common occurrence these days, isn't it? How many of you did business with somebody that promised you A for a certain price, but delivered to you B, which wasn't nearly as good as A? Probably many of you, right? The idea of Christ transforming culture is that, yes, we vote. Yes, we, we want to select candidates that, are, that, that have a biblical worldview, that uphold biblical values and virtues and all these kinds of things. But that's 
that's kind of only part of what we do, right? The other part of what we do is we go out into the culture and we live out our Christianity everywhere we go. We build businesses that are operating on integrity and telling the truth and a fair, uh, a good for a fair price, right? We, uh, we practice compassion and sacrifice and hard work for the good of others. And we go out into the world and we we build things that operate along these principles. Now, this has been tried before. It has. It's been tried before with other organizations, and, and these organizations went out to do good and to build things that were very Christian and to take the gospel with them as they went. And at some point, they experienced mission drift, and the organization separated itself from the gospel, and the gospel fell away. And the organization lost its purpose. We need a new generation, Delaware Bible Church, of folks that will go out into the culture and solve the real problems that aren't being solved. And, and I, I'm sorry to say this if I step on anybody's toes. We're looking to government to solve problems that the government can't solve. We have the good news of Jesus Christ, and we have God's word to instruct us on how to live skillfully. Let's apply it in every facet of, of our living on this earth. So we have a common understanding, right, of how Christianity transforms culture. We also have a, a common understanding of preference. What I, mean, what I mean by that is that at Delaware Bible Church, as we've said many times, we don't let our preferences become our doctrines. Right? There's things in the Bible that God specifically requires of us. There are things in the Bible that God specifically prohibits us to do and we know the difference and we also know that those areas of freedom are areas where we can agree to disagree and still have unity and that's important it's very important believe it or not we work very hard the staff the leadership of the church works very hard to to take those preferences and you and uh to to what do I want to say, to exercise the areas of this ministry that we have to exercise in preference, we try to do so sensitive to the needs of the entire body. For example, the songs that we select to sing, the style that we select to have, um, we try to do that in, in deference to everyone uh, from every different uh, demographic in the church. And that's a hard needle to thread, let me tell you, sometimes. But I appreciate, one of the things I do appreciate about you all is that, uh, you know, nobody comes up to me after the service and say, we are committing an act of sin because of some preferential thing that we did not to their preference. We understand it. We recognize it. We hold this in common. We understand preferences. We also understand obscurity. In other words, uh, there are whole ministries. I don't know if you've, you've uh, seen this before, but there are whole ministries that are out there that are built on one obscure passage from God's word. Whole doctrines being sold to people from one obscure passage where the interpretation of that passage is hotly debated. And here at Delaware Bible Church, one of the things I like to think that we hold in common is we are focused on practicing what the Bible clearly teaches. We understand, you know, the, for, the, for example, one of the things I find very refreshing about this church is that the doctrine of the end times, there are 
lots of different people who have lots of different thinking about the end times. And uh, though we, in our doctrinal statement, express a certain viewpoint, that represents, I think we would all agree, that represents our best understanding of Scripture. Uh, but, but we can also understand that that's a tough one. The doctrine of end times is a tough one. Um, and so we, we don't get, we don't treat that with the same, uh, we don't treat that with the same scrutiny that we would, for example, the doctrine of the virgin birth or the, the uh, atonement for our sin or Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We don't, those things are non-negotiable. So we choose not to build doctrines on obscure passages of Scripture. And then finally, we, we agree, we hold in common the structure of Delaware Bible Church in other words, we've, over time, this congregation, we have built a structure to provide leadership to this church, to make decisions, to, uh, to decide how we're going to do life together as Delaware Bible Church. It's called our church's constitution. If you haven't read it yet, now I know, it's, it's a wild read. It's, it's a page turner. But it is, I think, a document that was put together in wisdom to try to, to dictate how we're going to do life together. How are we going to build a new building? Well, the Constitution spells that out. How are we going to vote a pastor out of, the off, out of office? The Constitution spells that out. I would encourage you to just skip that part. <laughs> For my own self-interest, just read past that. But honestly, uh, the, we, we've, by becoming part of this church, by joining this church and becoming a member, you've declared... you you're fine with the way that we've decided to structure Delaware Bible Church. That may, that may change someday. Our, a lot of the things that compose the structure of Delaware Bible Church are preference things. For example, to, to vote in an associate pastor, assistant pastor, it takes 70% of the vote of the, the membership of this congregation. Is 70% in the Bible? That's a yes or no question, folks. It's not. It's a number that was deemed by the leadership and, and by you all to be a wise number to have. And so that was put in there. That may change someday, but that'll be a preference thing, and that'll happen by a majority vote of the members as it is spelled out in the con Constitution. Okay. Let me wrap this up because these next two points will go fast. Not only do we share a common doctrine, we share a common human experience. Look at verses 42 to 42, 42 to 44, sorry. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. We, we share a common human experience. Why are these folks, why are these, these fledgling Christians, why are they gathering themselves together? Why are they devoting themselves to the, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread? And Why are they doing all this? Why are they getting excited when God moves among them? Well, I would argue it's because one of the things that we all share is that we're all in this battle against sin, our sin. We're all battling. We're all trying, I think. I, I'd like to think that in this church, we're all trying to not live for self and instead trying to resist that and live instead for Jesus Christ according to his word. And it is a blessing 
that God has given us fellowship, the Word of God, and just our common experience together to be able to do that. We're given fellowship. This is a word that gets thrown around a lot in the church. But Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 really does a good job of defining what exactly fellowship is. Let me just remind you what it says. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? The day of Christ's return, right? What this passage in Hebrews is essentially saying is that fellowship can be defined, I think this does a good job of defining fellowship in three different categories. Time, we got to spend time together. They did not neglect to meet together. They met together regularly. Regularly. That's part of fellowship. They also met together. Proximity. I know that during the pandemic, we spent some time worshiping online. That is not the norm, and that and online worship can never replace in-person worship. It can't. Being able to live stream is wonderful for people who are traveling or are shut in. It's a wonderful blessing to have that. Uh, I think that listening to the sermon live when, you're, when you can't be with us is better than listening to a recording later, but then we also have the blessing of having a recording later. But we have to be around each other. Why? Because the third component is challenge. When it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, that word stir up means to provoke. And the people in your life, I would argue, and the people in my life, I would argue, that love you the most are the ones that will look you in the eye and tell you the truth. Even when that truth is difficult to hear. I don't ever like to be told about my blind spots, but I appreciate it. And I know that the person that tells me about my blind spots loves me. You came into this room today, every single one of you, with blind spots. Areas of sin in your life that you don't see. Areas in your character that need to be worked on that you don't get. Here's the good news. That God has placed you in fellowship. And there's people in your life who can see it. Will we be a church that practices true fellowship? The world is out there saying, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't offend anybody. My goodness, the last thing that we want to be is offensive. This passage, God is telling us that this is what true love looks like. Thinking about, considering how I, how you, can provoke, where's, where's my pen? Can provoke your neighbor another person in the church to love and good deeds. We got some work to do, Delaware Bible Church. 
lest we drift and become like the world and just come to church every day, every week, and just pretend that everything's okay and we're just not going to offend anybody. That is the way of the world, and you see how that's going. We share a common human experience. And then finally, we share stewardship over what God has given us. Look at what it says. The early, look what the early church did, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all any as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Everybody in this room has yourself. You have a skill set. You have a personality. You have weaknesses. You have resources. How can you best steward that to the edification of this body and to the glorification of God and to the outreach into the community? How can you best steward who you are and what you have? That's a serious that's a, that's a sit down with a pen, paper, a Bible, and a cup of coffee and wrestle that over with God for a while question. I would encourage you to take the time to do it. We are stewards over what God has given us, not owners. God is the owner of all, right? These are the, these are the three points from, the, from our capital campaign. God is the owner of it all, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. He created it all. So why do we hold on so tightly to our stuff and long for more thinking that somehow that will satisfy? It won't. The things that God's given us are tools to use, right? We are stewards, not owners. Stewards, for what purpose? <laughs> we talked about that. To glorify God in our lives, to spread the gospel message, to build up the body of Christ. These are our tasks, our goals, our mission, right? To love God, love others, make disciples. That's our, our mission. The things that God has given us, whether those things be intellectual gifts, abilities, you know, things we can do with our hands, our feet, our bodies, or resources, these things are all given to us to steward. And then finally, uh, you can read Matthew 25, the parable of talents. We are blessed to bless others. We are blessed to bless others. Now, listen, young people, you're going to go on social media, you're going to see YouTube videos and other other platforms you're going to see people that are uh, making viral videos of themselves giving away thousands of dollars at a time you know maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars in the time there's people out there that make viral videos and they earn their money by giving things away and it looks like generosity and certainly uh, some money can help some people that are really in, genuinely in need that's for sure but just track with me here for a second when you take generosity and you couple that with the life-changing, eternal life-giving message of the gospel 
and we live our lives in generosity and in the truth of God's word, we have so much more to offer than a YouTuber who's trying to make a name for himself. We have so much more to offer than that to this lost world. We have the message we carry. We are stewards of the gospel, stewards of the message of eternal life. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It starts here. It starts with how we treat each other here and extends into the community around us. And so, what are the things that we have in common at, at Delaware Bible Church? Here's the answer. At Delaware Bible Church, we have a common understanding of Scripture, a common human experience, and stewardship over all that God has blessed us with. How are you going to use what you have been given? What you have in common with the rest of us, how are you going to use that? By way of application today, here's a couple things. Let me just give you one. Uh, number one, are you living what you believe, right? I know if you've joined this church, you've signed the doctrinal statement saying, I believe it in its, in its entirety, or maybe I believe it except for point, you know, 17F or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but you've, you've joined the church. You've agreed to the doctrinal statement. Are you living it? Are you, are you striving to practice that which you say you believe? Are you living according to God's word? And if not, are you working to grow in the areas where you're falling short? Just by way of practical encouragement, I would encourage you to do this. Uh, go to the church's website, DelawareBible.org. Get yourself a copy of our doctrinal statement and work through it. This is, this is actually, I think, really helpful to do once a year. You know, day one, you know, work through statement one and look up all the passages of Scripture that are referenced there. Day two, Look up uh, point two or, you know, number two in our doctrinal statement. Work your way through those things there. Refresh your mind on what our Constitution says while you're at it. Um, and see all of the things that we hold in common. And if something is confusing to you or you're not quite getting it, ask. Right? Ask and learn, grow. Next week, we'll talk about Unity. And I'm just going to warn you, that's going to be a challenging message for each one of us to hear uh, because it's something that we th need to constantly work at. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We reflect on Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about how where there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we do have so much in common, and we thank you for that commonality. It gives us a basis, a foundation to live our lives from. It helps us when we have a, an argument or a dispute or we don't know which way to go, that we can, in unison, say, well, let's look into the Word of God and see what He has to say about this. And when we find that you have ruled on it, that we agree to live according to it. And when, when we find in your word that you've set this up as a preference item, we can agree to disagree and remain unified in that preference disagreement. Lord, your word is absolutely genius. 
it's, it's good for us and glorifying to you. Help us walk according to it in the fellowship of this particular local church, Delaware Bible Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.